Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Vaccine vigor, biotech Moderna says its vaccine is near 95% effective. Moderna momentum, global stocks saw the Dow poised to break 30,000. And the Pacific Partnership, 15 nations agreeing a major trade deal, minus the US and India. It's Monday, let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Great to have you with us for another jam-packed show filled with exciting news on the vaccine ventures, giving us all hope during these dark days of the COVID crisis. As I mentioned, Moderna just announcing interim data that shows its vaccine is near 95% effective in late-stage trials and even stronger performance than we were discussing last week, if you remember, with the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. Well, I can tell you the chairman of Moderna is coming up shortly to give us his take on all these details. We'll also be joined by Dr. Peter Hertez of the Baylor College of Medicine, whose low-cost vaccine has just begun early-stage trials, a potential game-changer for emerging markets like India too. It costs less, and this is key. Now, vaccine ventures are triggering another day of vaccine vroom on global markets. As you can see, the S&P 500 and the small cap Russell 2000, their domestic-focused stocks, begin the session at record highs. The Dow, as I mentioned, too, closing in on that 30,000 milestone yet again as well. Tech pulling back. Remember, it's the winners to the losers, that rotation that we're seeing. But I have to say, economic data from Asia is also helping sentiment. Japan posting a record 21% annualised growth rate for the third quarter, the first positive reading the country's had in a year, helping the Nikkei hit a 29-year high, as you can see in that chart. In the meantime, Chinese industrial production jumping in October and retail sales over in China raising or rising for a third straight month, but still should be clear below pre-pandemic levels. China also signing one of the largest trade deals ever with 14 neighboring nations. It's also merger Monday too. You have to keep up with me here. US Bank PNC buying the US operations of Spain's BBVA for more than $11.5 billion. That is one of the biggest banking deals in more than a decade. US and European bank stocks actually were the big winners last week. Part of that rotation, as I mentioned, out of some of the pandemic winners into some of the beaten up sectors as investors look past are pretty bleak present. Let's be clear as far as COVID is concerned and begin pricing in the vaccine victories. And it's no exaggeration, the hopes of humanity and the fate of markets are riding on it. Let's get to the drivers. Christine Romans joins me now. Christine, more rotation, that's the key, out of some of those pandemic winners into some of the losers. We're so excited about the vaccine breakthroughs that we're seeing. Great for markets. We still need a bridge to that moment for the real economy. And we'll keep talking about this. Yeah, and let's, because when I look at markets year to date, I see a NASDAQ up 30%, a Dow up more than 3%, uh, the S&P up 10%. Those year to date uh, performances allow uh, senators, GOP leadership to say, we don't need to do something that's big in terms of a bridge to next year right now in terms of more stimulus. So in a way, the stock market success story here really takes away some of the urgency about what is needed on Main Street. And I worry about that a little bit. Also, 
also, I guess when you look at what's happening here, this risk-on moment here today where they're flying into the stocks, flying out of some of the NASDAQ, some of the high flyers uh, of the pandemic uh, the pandemic period, uh, you, one wonders if there's a digestion that will come. There's all these vaccine hopes, vaccine victories, but at some point, as we're pricing in this new world with vaccines, sometimes there can be some digestion there, too, of the news and setbacks in the news. So I, I, I don't think you go straight up from here, but there's a lot of optimism. I'm sure you're hearing it, too. A lot of optimism about looking into 2021 at what will be the post-COVID or living co- with COVID uh, world here. And for right now, with the stock market doing as well as it is, it takes the heat uh, the political heat off of doing um, off of doing stimulus, and that's a real shame for real people. Yeah, we were talking about it last week as well. This light at the end of the tunnel, and we are seeing it. And perhaps, given the success rates that we're seeing, at least at this stage with the interim data for these vaccines, then we're pulling forward the yeah. time when we get back to some degree of normality. But again, we'll go back to the point. A, a survey this morning saying 11 to 13 million Americans might face eviction come January because all the measures, including some bump up in unemployment benefits, just in terms yeah. of the programs available, run off at the end of the year too. The There's just no time and we don't have that bridge, even if it's an earlier point upon which the the vaccines become available. And we know, we know that people, when they got their $1,200 check earlier this year, or they got $600 extra a week in unemployment benefits, it's very clear they saved some of that money. They saved some of that money and they've been using that money uh, this fall. That's why we've seen retail sales so strong. We've seen the consumer spending part of this picture so great. Um, That's kind of masking what's really happening in the economy. That's the money that the government injected into consumers to keep them whole. They're spending it down and these other um, these other really important supports are expiring in the next uh, uh, days and weeks. You won't have an economy at 100 percent on January 1st or January 20th or maybe even March 1st. So really here, there's an important leadership discussion to be had about helping Main Street. You're going to hear a lot of people talk about Dow 30,000. Look, that's great. I like it when stocks go up. But I have a terrible feeling that too many Americans have no difference in their life when the stock market is at 30,000. Yeah. And even when we get the growth numbers back and when the retail sales numbers recover, there will be still millions of Americans that are struggling. And to your point as well, I mean, that stimulus check was agreed, I think, 234 days ago. I think that works out to just over five dollars a day support. So some of it may have been saved, but more supports um, still needed. Christine Romans, thank you so much for that. Now, effective distribution of any vaccine and all the debate we were just discussing there about Congress acting key to uh, the recovery of the economy. President-elect Biden's team meeting with some of the vaccine companies, but his future plans hampered by the lack of formal transition talks. Joe Johns joins us now. Joe, we could substitute economic talks, vaccine distribution talks, all hampered, of course, by the lack of, of transition. We did get some tweets from the president that seemingly suggested that he now sees Joe Biden as having won this election. But of course, it was then swamped by further accusations of fraud and the need for recounts and the legal issues here too. Joe, where are we? Well, I can tell you just a few minutes ago, the president tweeted that he won the election once again, and it creates a serious problem when you think about it, because vaccines, Operation Work Speed, this is about the one thing this administration can point to that says they did something very well in the issue of coronavirus. A lot of the other things, not so much, but on Vaccines, they appear to have done well. However, the administration seems to be snatching defeat from the jaws of victory because they will not acknowledge that Joe Biden is uh, the rightfully elected next president of the United States. 
and sort of open up the doors to cooperation between the transition team and uh, the current administration. So what does that do? Well, number one, it forces Biden to sort of go to plan B and work around the edges, including doing things like meeting with the vaccine makers, um, meeting with others who used to work in, in the government, working on personnel and appointments. But the thing the incoming administration cannot do, at least at this stage, is something called agency review. And that is when a team from um, the Biden transition goes into various agencies. In the case of vaccine, it would be the Department of Health and Human Services and try to figure out where everything is, how the vaccine uh, deployment is going to work uh, here in the United States. So that creates a critical problem because, as Dr. Anthony Fauci has said, they could start trying to distribute this vaccine by the end of December, a very short timeline. And, of course, the new administration comes in in January, means Joe Biden would walk into a position where he doesn't know what's going on with the the deployment of this vaccine at a very critical time, Julia. Yeah, legal issues, recounts must be set aside, allow whoever's going to take over to be prepared to do so. And that's how we need to be behaving. Joe Johns, thank you so much for that. All right, let's get more details now on Moderna's big announcement as interim results show its vaccine is near 95% effective. Elizabeth Cohen joins me now. Elizabeth, wowzers is all I can say. Give us all the details. What does this mean and what more do we know? Uh, Julia, I think that's a very appropriate word. People were expecting maybe we'll get 60% effective if we're lucky, 70 or 80. But 94.5, that is way higher than even what people were hoping for. And it's in the same neighborhood. It's right at the same mark as Pfizer's vaccine. And another advantage is neither vaccine seems to have terrible side effects. People had headaches or body aches, but that was about it. And in addition, Moderna's vaccine, unlike Pfizer's, Moderna's vaccine does not need to be kept at those super low temperatures. They can be kept in freezers that pharmaceuticals and doctor's offices, at least in the United States, already have. So let's take a look at Moderna's specific numbers. So what Moderna did was they gave 15,000 study participants a placebo. That's a shot of saline that does nothing. And over a period of months, 90 of those people became sick with COVID-19. And they gave 15,000, a different 15,000, different group. They got the vaccine. And over a period of months, only five of those people became sick with COVID-19. So you can see that huge difference. That's where you get the 94.5%. And there's sort of a second note here, which is that those five people who got the vaccine and did get sick with COVID, in other words, the vaccine didn't prevent them from getting ill, it seems to have prevented them from getting severely ill. None of those five people became severely ill with COVID, but among the folks who got the placebo, 11 of them did get severely ill with COVID. Now, Moderna, this is news to us, and it also is really news to Moderna. They just found out this data yesterday afternoon. They heard about it from an independent data and safety monitoring board. They had a phone call with them yesterday. I spoke after that with Dr. Tal Zaks, who's the chief medical officer at Moderna. Let's take a listen. Tell me, how did it feel to hear that number, 94.5%? Elizabeth, it's one of the greatest moments of my life and my career. It is uh, absolutely amazing to me to be able to uh, develop this vaccine and see the ability to prevent symptomatic disease with such high efficacy. 
Now, the next step is that Pfizer and Moderna need to apply to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for authorization in the United States. That's expected to happen next week or the week after. And then the FDA has to review it. Last night, Dr. Anthony Fauci told me that he expects that vaccinations in the United States will begin in the second half of December. Julia? It's just so incredible, isn't it? And I think his smile said it all, Elizabeth. You know, we have to try and curb our enthusiasm here, but it's tough. It's... um what an incredible achievement. Thank you so much for that update there, Elizabeth Cohen. Thanks, Thank and you. Julia, I, I will add that these were early results, and so this isn't the Interim. final number, but still, yes. it was a lot of people, right? It was still a lot of people. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much, as always. Thanks. There's the moderating force. <laughs> Thank you. All right, stay with First Move for more on Moderna's vaccine. I'll be talking to the company's chairman later on in the show. Now, before Joe Biden gets a chance to set his administration's trade policies, just one of the uh, set of policies that we're talking about, China and 14 other Asia-Pacific nations forming the world's largest free trade bloc in a deal covering around a third of global economic output. John Defterius joins us on this. John, I don't believe in coincidences, quite frankly, but we know this kind of thing takes months, in fact, years of organisation. But, oh boy, the timing here and excluding the United States and India, of course, too. Yes, it's a concrete example, uh, Julia. If you leave a void there, somebody will fill it. Uh, Donald Trump turned his back on the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, and basically pivoted away from Asia. China's Xi Jinping comes in and does something that's rather comprehensive. It's uh, from the north in China all the way down to the south in New Zealand, as you suggested, covering almost a third of GDP, a market of 2.2 billion consumers. Uh, and uh, investors like what they hear. In fact, you talked about the Nikkei going to a 29-year high. We have the Asia MSCI at a 33-year high. It's extraordinary, uh, the growth that we're seeing out of it. Uh, and what's the playoff here in terms of what happens next? It's interesting, the Chinese were suggesting this is a vote of confidence for multilateralism and we can have a win-win. That was a message to Donald Trump and perhaps to Joe Biden coming in uh, at the same time, Julia. And it's also uh, fascinating to see that this is the first trade agreement that includes China, Japan, and South Korea. They're bearing the historical strains uh, for the betterment uh, of growth here uh, in Asia. Uh, Japan uh, getting this growth on uh, quarter on quarter of 5%, 21% on the year. The manufacturing sector uh, in China uh, zooming ahead above expectations in the month of October. The one complaint is it's short on details right now. They wanted to get this out before the transition to Joe Biden, it looks like. And how about the name? It doesn't actually roll off the tongue, does it, Julia? Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, or RCEP, right? It's not something we'll remember for a long, long time. But the message is clear from Asia. It's on the mend. It's growing. And now they have something, a trade framework, uh, if you will, that's working for them. Yeah, and all of these nations have had their own individual hassles and troubles, I think, with their trading arrangements with the United States. So they're like, guys, you can join, but you're joining rather than you arranging and being uh, at the forefront of coordinating this this time around. Fascinating on the timing. John Defterius, yes. thank you so much. All right, these are the stories making headlines around the world. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson is self-quarantining for 14 days after coming into contact with a lawmaker who tested positive for coronavirus. He says he has no symptoms and will continue working from Number 10 Downing Street, leading his government's pandemic response. The head of the International Olympic Committee says he's confident that crowds will be able to attend the Tokyo Games in July. Thomas Bach said he hopes a COVID vaccine will make the venue safer. The Games were postponed last July because of the coronavirus pandemic. 
All right, so to come here on First Move, more on Moderna. The company's founder and chairman joins us next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Call it, if you will, Moderna's moment. The S&P 500 is set to rise to new records as the vaccine maker reports an eye-popping success rate for its COVID vaccine. Moderna shares are up currently more than 14% pre-market. Economic reopening stocks are set to rally hard and stay-at-home stocks are looking softer. A continuation of that rotation into what we call relative value that we saw last week. We'll call it Moderna's momentum, as we did earlier on in the show, too. Oil also rallying on hopes that vaccines will boost future growth, even as new U.S. virus cases rise to new records and trigger fresh economic restrictions. It's that balance and that trade-off, of course. But let's bring it back to today's big breakthrough. Interim results from Moderna showing its vaccine has a 94.5% efficacy rate. And I'm pleased to say joining us now, Nubar Thayen. He's co-founder and chairman of Moderna. Sir, fantastic to have you on the show with us once again. Just talk to me about the moment you got that phone call, I'm sure, that told you how effective the interim results are showing this vaccine to be. It's a huge moment. Well, Julia, thanks for having me on again. Yes, indeed, we've been working over the past six months to get to this point since we started our very first human trials back in March. And of course, uh, it is a anxiety-filled moment because in science, you really can't be sure to predict what might happen. And there's a lot of variables, but, but, but really hearing yesterday from the independent monitoring board what the final results of this interim analysis were and hearing that out of 95 cases that were afflicted with COVID-19 in our trial that were analyzed, only five were on the vaccine and 90 were in the placebo, that I must say exceeded our expectations uh, in the sense that there's a lot of differences one gets when you get to larger populations and we were very gratified to see so far that actually the vaccines performed in a very robust way. And a key part of this, too, of the five people that had been given the vaccine, they didn't get severely ill with with COVID-19 either. How optimistic are you that that this vaccine perhaps, and obviously we need to see this scientifically proven, but perhaps it can reduce the severity even of those that do still catch COVID-19? We're we're encouraged by the data. In fact, I think it's important to understand we had out of the 95 cases, 11 were severe cases of COVID-19. And of course, we wanted to find out out of those 11, were there cases that were on the vaccine? And it turns out that all 11 cases were on the placebo. Now, you know, in, in, in scientific or clinical research, optimism is something that you actively keep in check because you have to do the rigorous experiments. But certainly I can say that we're encouraged by this interim readout. And we do expect, based on the, the numerous studies we did in animals and prior human uh, uh, analyses, looking very specifically at the antibodies and their levels, that we may well be able to, to keep in check the very severe cases. I'll also say that we had a number of different uh, uh, other subgroups that we're looking actively at. And in general, it looks like the vaccine performs broadly across all the population groups that we considered. Because I was going to ask you about um, 
elderly individuals and those with pre-existing conditions. So I think that's sort of what you're hinting at there, perhaps, too. Yes, we had 15 uh, in the elderly case uh, above 65. Uh, and, 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 and again, also some 20 that were from diverse populations. As you may realize, uh, some months ago, Moderna actually slightly slowed down the trial recruitment to ensure that we had a substantial representation. It turns out 37% of our trial were people, uh, were, were, were subjects that, that are considered uh, of color. And that is, it was a target for us to be able to achieve a high level of representation because we really wanted the vaccine to be tested in the most vulnerable populations. And, and I can say that when looking at the subgroups, we don't see any difference in the results. That is consistent with our phase one data, where we showed very specifically in folks over 65, in folks over 75, a robust and equivalent production. Fantastic. Um, Nubar, talk to me about timing now as far as application to the FDA, potential approval, approval from the, the FDA, and then, of course, supply. I know you'd promised uh, 100 million doses to the United States. What can you tell us about the timing, potentially assuming everything goes well here with approval? Yes. Well, of course, now, now that we have seen this data, uh, the, the expectation uh, of going as fast as is safely possible uh, and in as coordinated a way with the various parties that have to to, to get involved, particularly the regulators, uh, is our goal. And we're, we're definitely uh, uh, um, locked in on, on achieving the best, the best performance there. Um, what we expect will happen is based on this meeting already, there will be another safety readout. The FDA had set guidelines that we needed to have data from two months post the, the, the 50th percentile uh, recruitment. That is, when we get 15,000 folks into our trial and then wait two months, they wanted to see safety data from that. That will occur within a matter of days in our case. And once we have that data and we, we put together the package, we will then uh, present that to the FDA for emergency use authorization. There will be, as has been announced, an advisory committee review of that. So we're looking at early December uh, to, to, to take the important next steps. And as soon as we get the, the, the authorization, we are ready, together with Operation Warp Speed, who's been a really a key partner for us in this whole logistics aspect, to get the vaccines out to the first cohort uh, who's slated to receive it. I want to talk to you about the platform as well, the messenger RNA platform, which is a revolutionary piece of science. So we've never used this platform before to produce and to distribute vaccines in, in this way. What came to light, I think, in the past week, specifically when we got the news about Pfizer and, and BioNTech's vaccine is the need for cold storage and incredibly cold conditions and the complications that that creates in distributing these vaccines more broadly. Can you just compare the requirements for Moderna's vaccine and whether this makes it easier to distribute than, than some of the competitors? First, let me say that, as I've said in, in the previous uh, uh, occasions I've, I've had the, the pleasure to be talking with you, Julia, is that, is that we very much uh, support and want multiple vaccines to be available, and they will each have uh, relative strengths and weaknesses. So, so I will say I'll congratulate our colleagues at Pfizer for having already gathered the data 
needed to support their advancement because we think from a production standpoint, the world will need multiple suppliers and, and, and as much uh, volume available as quickly as possible. Now, to your specific question about Moderna's own technology, we spent multiple years pioneering the messenger RNA space. Uh, we've been at this for 10 years. And in the last few years, we actually have been working hard at coming up with more stable formulations of the vaccine that allows us to avoid the deep freeze, minus 70, minus 80 degrees uh, conditions. That is where we were several years ago as well. Uh, I'm pleased to say that the innovations made by our brilliant scientists at Moderna have taken us to the point where we can have our, our product stored at minus 20 degrees, which is uh, refrigeration conditions that are available quite broadly. But more importantly, today we announced that beyond the fact that we don't need the deep freeze conditions, we can also, and we validated, keep the vaccine under refrigeration conditions, that is two to eight degrees centigrade for th up to 30 days. That is a massive uh, enablement to be able to distribute uh, much more broadly and much more easily. And we continue to make improvements in that regard. Furthermore, we've also shown that you can have it at room temperature for up to 12 hours coming out of uh, the, the, the storage conditions. So in many ways, we think that this is an important part of the usefulness and ease of use of the vaccine, which if we're talking about hundreds of millions of, of doses will become a very important consideration. Yeah, and I take your point that we are all partners. There are no competitors ultimately in this game because we need so many of these vaccines. But the, the flexibility that allowing for the difference in, in temperature here, minus 20 versus minus 70, and, and being at room temperature for 12 hours gives a greater degree of flexibility, which is, which is the key point here. Nubar, very quickly, I just want to ask you about T cells. Are you measuring in people that have taken the vaccine the T cell response in the system? Because it's something I think that for us ordinary individuals, we don't necessarily understand enough, but we know it provides a sort of longer term degree of immunity in people that will become very interesting on whether we need this vaccine every year. Perhaps we don't. Are you measuring this? Uh, we certainly and everybody else is measuring it. I should say, Joya, because the whole world has become now educated in bi biology <laughs> concepts that most, <laughs> most people wanted to, to forget when they, when they were in high school. Uh, the reality is that there aren't one kind of T cells, there are many. The primary ones we think about are what's called CD4 and CD8 T cells. We have shown in our data that the CD4 T cells are highly activated due to our vaccine. Those are the T cells that are important to be able to generate a robust antibody response. The data in the vaccine world overwhelmingly supports the fact that a robust antibody response, which is enabled by CD4 response, is what is protective for future infections. There is interesting new research in the immunology field, of which we are at my firm flagship pioneering participants with some of our leading edge companies such as Repertoire, that actually looks at T cells, and Moderna certainly will measure that in the CD8 category. But what is not at all shown is that that is a, a, an essential part of protection. So through the COVID work, we will all learn how important CD8 T cells are. And if they are important, there's ways to increase them. But there is an oversimplification uh, out there through experts of some, some vaccines have a lot of CD8 positive cells, some don't, and therefore one is going to work better. 
there is no data that supports that. The only data that exists is that a robust antibody response is what vaccines have delivered against infectious diseases. And that's what we and Pfizer have demonstrated. Fantastic. Nibal, great to chat to you, the founder and the CEO of a Flagship Pioneering. You mentioned the company. Come back and talk to us from your perspective, too, today in your role as the co-founder and chairman of Moderna. Thank you to the team at Moderna for Thank all the so hard much. work and effort. Phenomenal to chat to you, sir, once again. Thank you. All right. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running on the first trading day of the week. Eventful already. We've got fresh records for the S&P 500 and the small cap Russell 2000 as investors applaud stunning late interim vaccine data from Moderna. A success rate of almost 95 percent. I tell you what, it doesn't get much better than that. The Dow also closing in on record highs. It's filled with value stocks that will benefit when vaccines are delivered and economies reopen. As you can see, the tech sector there underperforming, relatively flat. Its stay-at-home winners helped drive markets to records earlier this year. The Nasdaq fell half a percent last week as investors rotated into some of those beaten up names and away from some of the big tech winners throughout the pandemic period. We seem to be making real progress towards a coronavirus vaccine. Numerous of them, 12 candidates, are currently in phase three trials developed by companies including Moderna, as we just heard, Pfizer, AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson. Researchers at dozens of other companies are staging phase one and two trials. India-based Biological E also entering human trials of Baylor College's COVID-19 vaccine. And joining us now, Dr. Peter Hotez, he's Professor and Dean of Tropical Medicine at the Baylor College of Medicine. Fantastic to have you on the show with us once again. I want to talk about your specific vaccine and the work that's been doing there. But first, just to get your sense of what we heard from Moderna this morning, in light of what we heard, of course, from Pfizer and BioNTech last week, lots of progress here being made. Yeah, absolutely, Julia. I mean, I think what we're looking at is probably maybe a dozen different uh, vaccines. I mean, for us, the good news is both for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine, it validates the fact that the spike protein is the right target for these vaccines. So all of the vaccines that we talk about, whether it's uh, Moderna or Pfizer, AstraZeneca, Oxford, or ours, they all work by inducing an immune response against the spike protein and preventing the the virus from binding to our host tissues. So these findings of high levels of protection sort of validates what we've been, what researchers, including myself, have been saying for the last decade, that this is the way to go for a vaccine strategy. And then the question is, okay, well, if that's true, why do you need so many different types of vaccines? Well, Well, the issue is this, we don't really know for any one different, any one particular type of technology the, how long the protection is going to last. Uh, we, we know from the more traditional technologies that it could last for years. Is it going to be the same for the mRNA or the other uh, vaccines? We just don't know. So to kind of uh, uh, reduce the risk, it's good to have a portfolio of, of different candidates. And for the reason as stated by your previous guest, that uh, not, no one organization can make all of the vaccine for the world. So and so this has been kind of a, a big ecosystem now of a dozen different vaccines. And now we have ours uh, being tested across India. And we're excited about that for a number of reasons. Yeah, diversification is key. Talk to me about why you're excited, because as we were discussing there with the, the Moderna chairman, logistics, 
the ease of making the vaccine and where you can make it is critically important in addition to the platform. And this is why your vaccine, I think, and we'll keep our fingers crossed, is so important. Talk us through what you're um, what you're working on. That's right. So it's it's in some ways our vaccine is a, is a bit of a throwback. It uses a technology that's almost 40 years old. It's a recombinant protein vaccine expressed in yeast. And the reason that's relevant, it's the same technology that's used to deliver the hepatitis B vaccine all over the world. And one other piece to that, that recombinant hepatitis B vaccine is made locally in many countries in Brazil and Cuba and India and Indonesia and Bangladesh. So it offers the potential where we can have scale up production uh, in many uh, countries across the world rather than the traditional uh, approach, which is relying on the US or North America and Europe and then and having filtered down to low and middle income countries. We can get direct access and our partners at BioE, who are absolutely amazing, are producing 1.2 billion doses of, of this vaccine. So. Uh, the hope is that we can get a good uh, percentage of the world vaccinated, whereas the others, were, which require freezer, freezer technology, it's going to be a bit tougher to get that into places like Ethiopia and, and Nicaragua and, and, and you name it. So I'm hoping that ours can make a, a, an important contribution to this vaccine ecosystem, particularly for low and middle income countries. Timing, Dr. Hotez. Give me a sense of timing. I mean, you're talking about uh, in huge numbers, if you're talking about more than a billion doses here, the ability to make it locally rather than to have the issues of cold storage, which is not a problem, I'm assuming, with this either. This will be phenomenal. How long will it take, assuming everything goes well with the trials? Well, if all the stars align, the hope is that by the middle of next year, we can uh, be vaccinating a significant percentage of the global population. And of course, the stars have to align. Um, there are always bumps in the road, as we've seen with Moderna and Pfizer and AstraZeneca Oxford. But uh, I'm hopeful because it is a traditional technology. We know what to look for. We know about its safety record that now things can move pretty quickly. So even though you can move very fast using the mRNA technology to get into the clinic, given that it's a brand new technology, it, it can slow you down at the other end. And, and the hope is that even though ours took a little longer to make, uh, and develop just by a few months that we can make up for that lost time by the fact that it's a well, uh, well-known uh, approach uh, that's been used for decades. Peter, I have about 30 seconds. The vaccines are coming. There's light at the end of the tunnel, but we're in a pandemic still. And we need a bridge of some sort between where we are today and when we get the vaccines. What do people need to remember, particularly over Thanksgiving, at Christmas? They want to see their families. How should they act? So I'm so glad you asked that. Look, uh, you know, this, you know, in the past when I've told people about aggressive social distancing and wearing masks, I, I wasn't able to give them any end date for it. I would, I would just, you know, it, it almost sounded like I was asking them to do this in perpetuity. Now we have brackets on, on the right-hand side, Julia. We can tell people, look, this is not forever. Just hang on a few more months. Protect your loved ones uh, and, and save lives. Because right now the projections in the U.S., for instance, are especially dire. The numbers say we could have another 150,000 Americans die between now and a couple of weeks after the inauguration. They don't have to die. We just have to not be reckless, look after one another and keep that social distancing. And even though you're not going to see a lot of family uh, or over Thanksgiving and Christmas, 
you know, you'll you'll see them uh, in, a, after you get vaccinated. So just hang on a few months. I mean, imagine the tragedy of losing a loved one now when you know that if you just had them hang on uh, just a few more months, they would get vaccinated and live a normal life. And and that's the message I think it's really important to transmit. Yes. Be brave. We'll get there soon. Dr. Peter Hitez, thank you for that. You're making me emotional. We all have to um, take care of each other and ourselves. Absolutely. Professor at the Baylor College of Medicine. Thank you, sir. We'll speak to you soon. All right. After the break, what's the best foot forward for the tourism industry directly connected to this? The CEO of hotel giant Best Western is next. Welcome back to First Move. The hospitality industry will be welcoming today's vaccine news from Moderna with open arms as hotel rooms stand empty around the world. Best Western is one of the biggest franchises in the business. As you can see in the blue on this map, it has nearly 5,000 hotels across over 100 different nations. It's estimated 20,000 Best Western jobs have been lost since the start of the pandemic. That's on top of 800 layoffs at the parent company. David Kong is the CEO of Best Western and joins us now. David, it's fantastic news that we're hearing on the vaccine research front, but I guess it's bittersweet in many ways because support for businesses like yours is still needed to bridge the divide until we get there. Oh, absolutely, Julia. First of all, thank you. I appreciate you having me and, and shining a light on the plight of many of the hotel owners that are out there that are suffering an incredible carnage right now. Uh, since the start of the pandemic uh, till now, our industry is down by about 50% in revenue, which is uh, very significant. And recently, with a big spike, a lot of uh, municipalities and states are shutting down again, uh, which is causing tremendous number of cancellations of late, uh, which is really just uh, adding fuel to fire to, to a very bad situation. What, what proportion of your, your franchisees are saying to you, and you can, you can talk to me about wherever in the world is, is, is worst at this moment, are saying to you, look, we're, we're not going to make another shutdown if we have to close down again or we continue to see these conditions, we're just not going to make it. Yeah, well, according to the American Hotel Lodging Association study, uh, which was only a couple of months ago, they, they said that three quarters of the hotels are planning for the layoffs and only half the hotels uh, have enough reserve to last another six months and and, and therefore are in danger of foreclosure. So it's a, it's a whopping number, half, half the hotels are in danger of foreclosure. How frustrating is it to watch what's going on in, in D.C. at this moment and, and Congress and the inability to agree on a package for particularly for small businesses and those that would help perhaps some of the the smaller hotels that are your, your franchisees? There's agreement there. Yeah. They just can't reach an agreement. Yes, it's tremendously maddening and frustrating. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is, uh, despite the good news that are out there about the vaccine, which gives us the light at the, at the end of the tunnel, we do need a bridge to the other side for the time being. And so many of the hotels, at least half the hotels are owned by small uh, businesses and they are the small businesses and they're owned by hardworking men and women trying to make an honest living. And they really need help uh, because this, this whole big stock market rally is happening on Wall Street, it's not Main Street. Millions of people are out of jobs, they've been followed or, or laid off and they need help. And more people are gonna get laid off if we don't get some assistance. So, so it's really uh, disturbing to see that we can come to some resolution, at least provide some relief so we can get to the other side. Yeah, we need an agreement and we need it 
like months ago. David, can you compare what you're seeing, and we've talked about the challenges in the United States, to what you're seeing in China? Because we are looking at the data there, certainly, and it looks like a strong recovery in comparison. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I was just talking to our partner in China just a week ago, mm. and he said the contrast is this. Um, the, when, when there's an outbreak in China in any city, they basically lock down the city and they do testing on everybody in the city. So within a matter of two or three days, they're able to test everybody in the city and then they isolate the problem. The, the people that are infected go to the hospital, the, the rest go on with their lives as usual. And then after three days, uh, the city reopens. So that massive amount of testing, the capability to do that is, is what we need. Um, to isolate a problem rather than locking down the whole state. And uh, the critics would say there's no way Americans or Western nations would stand for the kind of controls that, that China imposes. But I think your message here is we still need far more testing and we need a strategy with regards testing. And we're still going to need oh. that for many months to come. That's, that's right. All I'm saying is we don't, I mean, we're certainly not an authoritarian government like China, but we can increase the capabilities for testing and contact tracing. Yeah, we can uh, and we try can to isolate the lessons. problem. I hear you. David, fantastic to have you on the show. I'm sorry for the challenges and we'll keep our fingers crossed that more support is forthcoming sooner rather than later. David Kong, so CEO much. of Best Western. Great to chat to you, sir. Thank you. All right, still to come on First Move, a look at Sunday's space launch and why it's won another one in the history books. Welcome back to First Move. All week long, we're going to be looking at firms that have been around for 100 years or more. Today, it's Suntory, the Japanese multinational brewing and distilling company that got its start in 1899. Sir now on how Suntory is growing its business while partnering with the environment. For relaxing times, make it Suntory time. Hollywood movie Lost in Translation puts Suntory whiskey in the spotlight on a global stage for many. Its story began over a century earlier when Japanese merchant Shinjiro Tori started to develop Western-style liquors for a Japanese market. In 1899, my great-grandfather founded the company in Osaka. In 1923, Shinjo Tori built Japan's first whiskey distillery in Yamazaki. A few years later, Suntory's Kakubin whiskey was born. With success came a desire to protect the natural resources essential to creating Suntory's products. We have to preserve the environment, nature, and because of the good waters we have in Hakushu, Yamazaki, we benefit from those waters to produce our good brands. High up in Japan's Southern Alps, Suntory's Hakushu Distillery was built in 1973 to source the region's pure spring water. Its mountain streams form part of a network of 21 water sanctuaries the company has established with local authorities across Japan. For relaxing times, Make it Suntory time. But these aren't exactly relaxing times. The COVID-19 pandemic has provided new challenges. 
Suntory closed its distilleries to the public while still working to maintain production levels. It plans to develop its e-commerce and home delivery services to continue to reach their now global customer base expanded by Suntory's acquisition of U.S. spirits company Beam in 2014. My dream is uh, that I can drink Japanese whiskey all over the world, and I believe it's very, very possible. And continuing its legacy for future Tory generations. my favorite news of the day, aside from vaccines. A SpaceX craft carrying four astronauts from the US and Japan successfully launched into space on Sunday after Hurricane Eta delayed Saturday's planned launch. Watch this. One, zero, ignition. deal for NASA and for the company, the first fully operational crewed mission using a NASA-certified commercial spacecraft. The Crew Dragon capsule is expected to dock with the International Space Station this evening. Wow, what images. Now, astronauts, not the only one gaining altitude. Take a look at this. We've got green arrows across the board for U.S. stocks as markets applaud promising new vaccine data from Moderna. The S&P 500 and the small cap Russell 2000 are sitting at fresh records at this moment. The tech sector picking up a bit of momentum here. We're up two tenths of one percent. The Dow, I have to say, going to need a bit more oomph to hit that much delayed 30,000 milestone. But hey, it's still early in the session. We shall see. That's it for the show for now. I'm Julia Chatterley. Stay safe and we'll see you tomorrow. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.